Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 154 of the Speaking Club podcast. I've got three things to share with you today. First of all, here are two jokes from my mother-in-law to be, who is a maths consultant. There are three types of maths teachers, those who can count and those who can't. What did the zero say to the eight? Nice belt. There you go. But that's not all. Here's something to keep in mind in the midst of all that's going on right now. Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey! Welcome to the show and thanks again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club. So my guest today spent a long time bumming around the world, overcoming baggage from his past and avoiding responsibility. But then Paul Wilson made the unexpected 180 degree turnaround to become the emergency response manager for the Channel Tunnel. After a successful career, Paul felt ready to make a change which embraced his lifelong interest in the mind and human behaviour. So he subsequently trained in a number of different methods, including hypnosis and NLP, all geared towards helping people remove unwanted mental baggage in order to clear a path for success. And today he guides people through what he calls the devil's triangle to overcome their anxiety, fears and improve their mindset and resilience to live happier lives. So if you struggle with confidence and get stopped by fear, there's going to be value for you in this show. But before we head over to the interview, I just wanted to let you know about the next Snackable Story Challenge, which is coming up very soon. So if improving your speaking or storytelling is one of your big goals for 2021, then I promise you this will give you a massive boost and it's completely free. So come and join the challenge to discover your snackable stories and to learn how to make them engaging and powerful so that you can grow your audience and have more impact. And you can find out more about that at saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. Right, on with the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Paul Wilson. Good morning. How are you? Nice to meet I'm- you. I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to meet you too. So my first question for you before we get into into all of the stuff that you do today is how did you become the emergency response manager at the Channel Tunnel and what was that like? How long have you got? <laughs> long story short, I won't give you my full life so I could be here for years. Um, in the 80s, I bummed around a lot. So in the summer, I was a beach bum uh, working on campsites and that kind of thing, bistros and bars. In the winter... I would work in ski resorts and I worked in places like uh, Dick's Tea Bar, which is one of the most famous bars on the planet if you're in the skiing world. And in between times, I'd hitchhike around. And then as you do, 
I met a woman, didn't I? And I came back to England in 88 and all my plans of world domination and traveling around the world and all these kinds of things went through the floor. For the first, what, 88, 89, 90, 91 and 92, I was in a lot of temp jobs and working for people like Manpower, working in factories, driving vans. I became an estate agent just when Jewel Myrus, which was mortgage relief interest at source, which basically meant you got money off your mortgage, if there was a couple, that got stopped and inflation went up to 17, 18%. Oh, and I remember that. I got sacked. Oh, no. I remember on this one day, I sold five houses, got five offers in, got five offers accepted, got a call. I just had a brand new company car delivered, got a call to go to head office, went to head office because the company had been um, taken over. And this, this young lad, because he was about, he was about 20 and I was early 30s at the time, and he looked at me and went, he went, you're effing useless at selling houses, you're fired. Just like your Lord Trudy went, you're fired, F off. Give me your car keys, by the way. All right, fine. <laughs> but basically, he, it was one of these companies that was like, you remember Burst Weaves had a really bad reputation of like going around and sticking for sale boards on houses that weren't even for sale and this kind of thing. It was one of those companies, really bang, 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 real hard yeah. sell, real push, push, push. And if you didn't sell 100 houses a day kind of thing, you're out. So I was just an easy target, so they got rid of me. Anyway, during the 80s, I'd worked, spent a lot of time working in France, and I'd really spent a lot of time working on my language uh-huh. skills. So I'd become fluent in French. But back in the UK, I wasn't having any opportunity to speak French, and I was getting really cheesed off because I was losing that skill that I'd learned. Yeah. One Thursday, I was coming home from work. I went into my local news agents. I was living in Golders Green at the time in uh, central London, well, North London. And it was like six or seven o'clock. I was looking for a newspaper. The Standard had sold out. The Telegraph had sold out. All the papers had sold out except The Guardian, which is just not my kind of newspaper. But I got it because I was desperate for a job. Took it home. And you know, it's a big paper. And I'm just going, there, where's the hell the jobs? It's Thursday's job day. There's no jobs. And I finally get scroll through this blooming newspaper. And there's like a really tiny, less than half a page section with the jobs in. And in there, there's a really tiny little advert that goes, do you speak French? Do you fancy a challenge? And it has the Eurotunnel logo. So I thought, yes, I do speak French. And yes, I'm sick of this job. I want a challenge. So the next day I rang them. And this lady says, do you speak French? I went, yeah. She said, okay, hang on a minute. And you could hear the, the switchboard whirring as she transferred me somewhere. And this lady came on and started chatting to me in French. And I'm going, oh, wow, this is great. And we had this conversation in French. Mid-conversation, she, and it was a French lady, she stopped speaking French and switched into perfect BBC English. I went, yeah, your French is great. I'll put you back to the switchboard. We'll get you in to a, an interview. Two weeks later, I got invited to what I call Hell Day. You know, to be a SEAL, American Special Forces, they yes. have this Hell Week where you don't get any sleep and they really taught you. I got invited to this assessment day. I was there for 12 hours. There was like group interviews, individual interviews, group exercises and tests and all kinds of bizarre things, which just completely fried my brain. Because I'm a simple lad, you know. And it was in, a lot was in French as well. And it really screwed my head. I was one of these people, I thought that I spoke perfect French. And because a lot of Brits don't speak French, I thought I would be the only person in this room that spoke really, really good French. So lunchtime comes along and there's all these guys going, we found out what the salary is. I was earning 45 grand a year working the rigs in Algeria. This is 1992. 
they're offering 14 grand as a starting salary. So literally half the room, about 30 people in the room, half the room got up and walked out. Because one block went, I won't get out of bloody bed for less than 35. And they just got up and went. And so the rest of the day just carried on as if nothing had happened. And I, I walked out of there. I'm sure, Sarah, you've never done this. Absolutely never. Your, your listeners haven't done this either. But I have woken up some mornings with the hangover from hell. <laughs> you can't move. A leaf rustles 20 miles away and it ripples through your brain causing pain. That's how I felt when I walked out of this 12-hour assessment day. My, I was just completely frazzled. Yeah. And I was going, I haven't got a chance. I'm a hope in hell. This was like, because there were engineers, there were people with degrees and MSBs and PhDs and ABCs and God knows. I've got nothing. I didn't go to university. I left school at 15. So I'm thinking, that's it, Paul. Well, you, you did your best. End of story. And a couple of weeks later, I got a letter saying, you've been invited to a final interview. So I went to this interview, had a really great time because it was just a really, I just didn't care. Because it was clear that, like I said, I just didn't have a chance. I just went, I was just me. I didn't try and put in any graces, any airs and grace. I'm a cheeky so-and-so. And that's what came across because a guy called Joe McCaughey, he was a ginger-haired young lad. He was the head of HR at the time. And about 10 years later, I was chatting to him. And he said, do you want to see what I wrote about you in the interview, that first interview? I mean, yeah, go on then. And he picked up a piece of paper, this massive piece of paper. He's like, in the middle of it was in big, bold red letters, like cheeky sod. <laughs> That's all he'd written during his final interview. So anyway, I got taken on. We spent a year training. Most of our life spent on a ferry because a lot of the training was in France and in Folkestone. And we'd be going backwards and forwards on the ferry because the tunnel wasn't finished at the time. And there was training in Paris. I spent six weeks in Paris, Rue de la Poissonnière, the Fisherman Street, uh, um, SNCF, which is the Friends Railway, uh, training, training centre, and all kinds of brilliant things. And so I spent the first 10 years in the control room, moving the trains around and keeping everybody safe. And then three of those 10 years as a duty manager. So it's my train set whilst I was on I was in charge of everything, pretty much. Then there was a quick switch into health and safety. And then I got headhunted or head shrunk, as I like to say it. An old friend of mine, who's a director, came over one day and said, let's go and have lunch. And he said, I need you for this job. And when anybody ever says that at work, you go, that sounds really scary. No, thank you. And you walk in the opposite direction. But he's such a lovely fella. And he went, I need you for a job. So, okay, tell me what it is. And he said, it's the emergency response manager. And basically the job meant that I'd have a team in France, a team in the UK, and we would look at all of the safety stuff in the tunnel, keeping people safe. And part of that was I had firefighters on the UK side, firefighters on the French side to look after. I had to plan, organize, run, direct, debrief exercises weekly monthly and one man you know annual exercise where we'd shut down the entire system for a night and run some major disaster scenario you know fires floods earthquakes in 2012 just before the olympics we had french and british special forces underground going through um a scenario where a eurostar had been hijacked and it was was incredible it was so scary sat in the middle of this train with the exercise um, officers from the military, both sides, and one half had been given to the French special forces, one half had been given to the UK special forces to do their thing. And we had the train full of bodies. 
and I'm sitting there, suddenly all the lights go out, and that can't happen because it's this safety system. You need lights on, don't you? But all the lights go out, and then you suddenly hear screams, and you can hear shots, bang, 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 bang. Obviously blanks, they're firing, yeah, and flashbangs, which like to disorientate you, and then it just goes dead silent. And the instructors say nothing, and I'm sitting there going, what the hell's going on? And then after about five minutes, I, can, I think I can hear something, but it's pitch black, I can't hear anything. And I look down at my chest, and there's three red dots on oh my, my chest. Goodness. And basically what the, the guys were doing is they'd taken out the terrorists on their train, and part of their job was to sweep the train inside and out to make sure there was nobody left. And they knew where the midpoint was at the end of the exercise, and they'd come to the midpoint, and they were pointing their weapons at me, yeah, to kind of say to their boss, yeah, we're here, boss. And he just burst out laughing and said, that's the end of the exercise. Oh, my goodness. But I didn't hear them coming, and I couldn't see them. You wouldn't know. Because in the movies, they're all like, yeah, look at me yeah. kind of thing, you know. These guys were just ordinary young men. You, you'd walk past them in the street, you wouldn't, you wouldn't blink, you wouldn't bat an eye. And obviously, that's, that's one of the things that they do when they're selecting these people. But that was fabulous. I had lots of experiences like that. And then in 2015... I negotiated a new contract with Kent Fine Rescue Service because they were the ones that supplied the UK firefighters. And my boss called me into the office and went, Paul, you've done a brilliant job. That's really good. It's good for them and it's good for us. I went, thanks, boss. Do I get a raise? He went, no, you get a new job. Uh. And I went, what? And basically, as all companies do, they're looking for ways to save money. So my mate Rob, who was head of security, was given my job, so he became head of security and emergency response. And then I got a job that a guy had just retired from, which was not operational, not frontline kind of stuff. It was back office things, and it just wasn't me. So I gave it my best shot, worked really hard, but it just it wasn't a good fit. Yeah. You know, like you meet a friend, and your friend says, oh, I've just found a new bloke. And you meet the bloke, and you go, that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the best efforts, you can just yeah. tell straight away it isn't going to work, yeah. and it doesn't work. Well, it just wasn't work for me. I did did a really good job and got things going and whatever. It just wasn't me. On October the third, twenty seventeen, I had what I now call my Independence Day. I was cycling to work, and I got knocked off my bike, and I broke a bone either side of my right elbow. Uh-huh. So and I'm right-handed. So I couldn't do anything. So it was so painful, so uncomfortable. I couldn't type, I couldn't write. So I was signed off work for six weeks. And that meant all I could do was sit and think. And the, it was two things. Do I stay and get more and more miserable? Because I knew there was going to be no more promotions because I was 58 at the time. And it was pretty clear that that was going to be the end of it. It was either there or nothing. And make everybody else miserable. Or do I, I make a leap and do something completely different? And... I still hadn't decided. So I was six weeks out of work, back into the office, you know, trying to scrape my way into the office because all the mail, trying to get the computer on. And the head of HR walks past my office and goes, hi, Paul, how's the arm? To this day, I don't know what happened, but I went, hi, Nick, the arm's great. Have you got a minute? Yeah, yeah, come around to my office. Long story short, about three or four weeks later, on the exact date of my 25th anniversary, I'm out. I've, I agree a deal with them and I'm out. I was going to become a photographer because photography is my passion. It's my thing. I just, I just love taking photographs. But I got talking to some professional photographers who'd been in the game for a long, 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 long time. And they said, Paul, forget it. They said to me, look, anybody who's got one of these, I'm holding up a mobile phone, is now a photographer. 
and the bottom has fallen out of the photography market. And unless you're well established, it's going to take you donkey's years to make more than a few quid. Because like we were talking before we went live mm-hmm. on how um, stand-up comics get paid very, very little and some will work for free just for the exposure. There are so many people out there now in photography that will work for free, not even for a meal, just to get experience. So I thought, right, okay, I don't want to turn my passion into a slog and a grind and a hustle, so I'm going to do something else. So 2018 was the year of having fun and doing cool things. So I did a social dynamics course, took on a personal trainer, uh, did a 15-week stand-up comedy course, all, all kinds of things. I'd always had this interest, this kind of passion-y thing for the mind and uh, mindset and hypnosis and mesmerism. And uh, there was a, a program called The Mentalist and Darren Brown, and I loved all that kind of stuff. And I got an opportunity to attend a one-day workshop for a new kind of hypnosis, and it was free because it was by my um, personal trainer, so I thought, okay, what the hell, why not, let's go. And I ended up working with this lady who had a fear of snakes and worms, anything that basically crawled or wriggled along the floor. And as a test, we were told to like get a photograph and show it to the person. So I've got my phone like this, so the blank side facing towards my, my client, inverted yeah. commas, and I'm saying, right, I've got a picture of a, a worm here. I'm just about to show it and show it to you, turn the phone over. And she burst into tears and started shaking and all kinds of things. No, please, don't show me, don't show me, don't show me. So, okay, I put the phone away and we worked on the thing and we got rid of it. And I thought, wow, that was good, but it didn't kind of click. It didn't buzz. Yeah. The very next day, it was, a, it was a day like today, the sun shining and all that. And I'm sitting around in my house, minding my own business. And I get a, a message on my phone. And this lady, every Sunday, her and the family go for a walk in some local woods. And I'm going, what's this? And she sent me a video. And there's the family walking in the woods. Dad's doing the videoing. And the kids disappear off and dad goes, darling, you better take a detour. There's a massive worm in the path. And he's expecting her to kind of like tiptoe around it and carry on walking. She goes, no, no, it's all right. And then she, this is amazing. She gets on her hands and knees and very, very gently and carefully scoops this worm up in her hands, no gloves, bare hands, and carries it over to this grassy mound and places it gently on this grassy mound husband almost drops his phone, launches a stream of expletives because he can't believe what he's just seen. And I'm sitting there going, bloody hell, Paul, he's got a superpower. And it was then that moment that made me decide, this is what I want to do. So I went to the personal trainer, said, who trained you? He said, Joe Bloggs. Went to see Joe Bloggs, trained with him. I said to Joe Bloggs, who trained you? And I did that three or four times, bought every book imaginable on hypnosis and mindset and neuroscience, all that kind of stuff. I just immersed myself in it. Oh, cool. And that's kind of my story in, what, 10 minutes, I think? Wow. There are a number of different methods for working with thoughts and behaviour. I don't know, were there lots of different ones that you tried? Because there's one that you've mentioned that I know of called the control, which not many people, uh, I think, I don't know, I, I understand it's not it's quite new or quite different but there's always NLP and stuff so how did you choose which one to specialize in or do you have a variety of tools and techniques that you use okay a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this but actually there aren't a lot of hypnosis techniques because all pretty much the same thing just dressed differently so because the idea is you're, you're going to get a potential client to relax so you can do some work with them 
the control system is basically all about IMRs, idiomotor responses. And again, I, there's nothing new about IMRs. People have been using them for years, but the guy that developed that has developed a, a, his own signature way of doing things, shall we say. Yeah. Mm. But when it comes down to the basics, it's, it's been done before. And that's the same for all these. They're called great things. They're called these amazing, you know, the amazing Paul Wilson technique for hypnotizing your best friend in 30 seconds or the amazing technique for doing this or the swan or the this or the that. But it's like every industry, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just how you present things and how you get to the desired result. That's all, that's all that clients are bothered about is, yeah. I want to stop smoking, Paul. Can you help me stop smoking? They don't care whether I do voodoo jigs, dance naked, stand up and down three times or, or go... They just want to stop smoking. The, one of the biggest challenges for people in this business is they focus too much on the name of their thing. I'm an RTT specialist. No, 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 no. That's crap. I'm an NLP specialist. No, 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 no. I'm a control. I'm a this, I'm a that. Clients don't care. All clients want is for you to sort out their thing. Now, the one challenge that I found was that people were coming to me with, you know, I want to stop smoking. I've got depression. I'm struggling with anxiety, this kind of stuff. And all those things are symptomatic of a root cause yes and because they're only coming to me for one two or three sessions i couldn't really delve to the root cause and i realized i wanted to do more so i kind of morphed into becoming a coach i call myself a mindset coach and i use hypnosis hypnotherapy in my coaching practice but using coaching gives me more opportunity to work on the whole of the client and actually find the root cause. Imagine if you're a 19th century explorer and you arrive in this new country and there's this massively wide river and you want to find the source of that river. So you jump on a boat and you sail down the river and it gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. So you have to get off the boat and you start walking along the side of it and you follow the stream. And eventually you're looking for the source of this massive river and you come to a lake or a waterfall. And that's the kind of way that I work with my clients the the street the river is procrastination and this devil's triangle which we'll talk about i'm sure in a minute yes and i'm looking backwards for the source of the problem which is like the root cause and that's one of the ways i will help clients no that's that's really cool yeah and i'm going to talk to you in a bit more detail about the type of things that you help with but have you what i was interested in as well is have you ever struggled with any of the issues that you help people overcome yeah, anybody who says they haven't is lying. Um, I've struggled with depression for my entire life. Uh, Winston Churchill called it his black dog. He imagined having his black Labrador following around. For me, it's like a dot on a, a page of text. If you remember the old Acme cartoons when, when I was a kid, and you know they may still be around, the good guy would be, be chased by the bad character and the good character would put his hand in his pocket and pull out a black floppy circle, drop it on the floor, and the bad guy would Jump. fall in it, yeah. would fall into it. The good guy would pick up the floppy circle, sing it back in his pocket. And that's what used to happen to me. This, this little dot would expand, get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until I fell in. Uh, first time was when I was about 13 or 14. And the problem back then, because I'm 60, so we're talking uh, the mid-70s, depression and anxiety and all that kind of stuff wasn't really di diagnosed as such or if it was you were just thrown lots and lots of um pills and things i never told anybody about this because my dad's black or was black yeah um because his father was an african uh, nigerian village chief and i came from an area which is very very white and my dad was a postman so he his route included my school at the time 
So I get a lot of stick from that. I was very sickly as a kid. So the whole shtick. So it was a very, very depressing childhood, a lot of it. Didn't enjoy it at all. And that's kind of been with me a long, 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 long time. And it took me ages to get to grips with it. And what happened after 1993 is so funny. Um, I planned it meticulously. But what happened was somebody came home four hours earlier than anticipated. And they found me in this state that I was in, which was pretty much unconscious and out of it. Called an ambulance, took me to a hospital and did what they need to do. And then the, the CAMS team, like a special emergency medical team, came and had a chat with me. And I wasn't sectioned. Sectioned yeah. is when you are kind of like arrested and taken to a, a mental place. They said, we strongly, yeah, we strongly suggest you go to this place for a couple of weeks and, you know, they'll, they'll sort you out kind of thing. And I knew he wouldn't, but I thought, okay, fair enough, I'll go. Oh, man, um, I just wish I'd never gone to this place. It was awful. Have you seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Yes. Yeah, with Jack Nicholson. Yes. It was kind of like that. Not that extreme, but it was like, this is a time where everybody still smoked. And this when smoking indoors was legal. So you couldn't actually see the other end of the room in this building because it was just thick with smoke. And one thing that I didn't know is that guys that are in top security prisons had learned through the trick of self-harming to come to this place for a holiday. Because oh they'd, they'd roam around this place and they'd get three square meals and there'd be no sales and no bars on the walls or anything like that. So I've, I've arrived and I've been told to sit down and someone will come and talk to me. And I'm sitting in this chair, minding my own business. There's lots of other chairs empty. People are off doing things. And this, this, this thing, and I can only describe him as a thing. He's a monster. He was huge, got massive. And he comes up to me and he leans right over me and goes, you're sitting in my effing chair, mate. Up it. And I'm going, okay, please don't pull one of my arms off. So I go, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize it was your chair, mate. And I got up and I went and sat in a chair opposite. Two seconds later, he comes over again, leans over me. You're sitting in my effing chair, mate. This happens three more times. And in the end, I think, how am I going to get out of this? So I said, look, I'm really sorry I've been sitting in your chairs, mate. And I'm having to look up like this. He's so huge. Can you tell me which chair that it's okay for me to sit in, please? Well, you can go and sit in that chair over there. Okay, okay, fine. Thank you very much. I go and sit in that chair and he leaves me alone. That scared the life out of me because this guy, I found out later, uh, was had, had done some harm to several people and had been locked up for a long, long time. So I get called in to see the, the psychiatrist and I felt so sorry for this, this person because he was very young. He was, I was about, what, 33, 34 at the time. He can't be much older than me. He, the, he had bags on his bags on his bags, smelt like a chimney and was physically exhausted because there was virtually no staff in this place. There was probably 40 or 50 people. I think I saw two nurses and him. So I got called in and he goes, tell me what happened, Bob. I said, look, can we just stop for a second? He goes, okay, what's the problem? Right, first of all, I told him about the, the giant with the, the, the chair thing. And I'm asthmatic. And even though I did smoke for a while, I just couldn't hack. I said, look, this, this atmosphere is killing me. I, I can't breathe. I want out. We, we can't let you out because of, you know, you, you tried to kill yourself and we think you're a danger. I said, look, there is no way on this planet that I'm going to ever even think about harming myself again if I've got to come back here. I said, look, this is the best motivator for not killing myself I've ever, <laughs> ever had. Because I've had this big monster trying to you know, threaten to pull my arms off. I can't breathe, can't see the other end of the room. I don't want to be here. 
So he went, well, look, you've got to stay overnight and then I'll talk to you tomorrow morning and we'll see how things are in the morning. So I go, oh God, I'm going to spend the night here. And that the next thing I know, it's six o'clock in the morning, I'm being shaken up to go for breakfast. So I went and saw the guy and he went, yeah, okay, you can go. And I called my friend to come and pick me up and I have never subsequently tried to kill myself. I had some dark thoughts and I've had some dark moments, but what I did was I put a whole list of things in place like alarms and triggers. So not, I mean, people use the word trigger. I was, oh, somebody just said the F word. That really triggered me. I'm not talking about that kind of triggering, like a warning, like a tripwire. So if something happens to me or I think of something or see something, that tripwire alerts me to do something, like get up and go for a walk or whatever. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. To give an example, my dad died in June 2017. Now, I've been the black sheep of the family forever. And me and my dad weren't close and I was in debt. I was 50 grand in debt at the time. So I had zero money because I was on a payment program. So I couldn't get to him because I literally I had about 5p in my pocket. I didn't have a car, so I couldn't get a bus, couldn't get a train. I didn't know anybody could lend me money. I couldn't get to see him. He died within a day of me being told. I wasn't invited to the funeral. It, was, it went into a place which was horrible. Now, I knew the difference between, I knew what depression's like. I knew what it feels like to be in that black hole. And this was different. Literally for two weeks, I just curled up on the sofa and cried and cried and cried. I phoned work and said, I'm not coming in. And I didn't talk to anybody else. And I basically, I just kind of stuck myself this sofa for two weeks. And it was grief. Mm-hmm. And it was so shocking and so unexpected because we just weren't that close. Mm-hmm. We weren't close at all. And yet all this stuff is coming out of me. And the only good thing to come out of that is I recognized it straight away as grief and not depression. So there was, there were no dark thoughts in that direction. It was just like, there was a lot, it was a big pity party. You know, uh, why didn't I get up there? One, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Why this, why that, why, and so on. Mm. It took me two weeks to get out of it. And that was, that was a really, really dark two weeks. But thankfully it was depression. And so now, yeah, I mean, there are times when, if things aren't going right for me, I can feel the the dot I talked about, that little period on a piece of paper starting to expand. Yeah. And basically I just grab it and take action and shrink it back down again. Yeah. I've been there. I've done it. I've had the anxiety. I've had the worry. I've had the stress. You know, 50 grand in debt is not a nice place to be. And I paid every single penny back despite being separated. I'm to pay maintenance and rent and all this kind of stuff. Coincidentally, in October 2017 was the last month of making payments, I paid the whole 50 grand back. So this is one of the reasons why I can help people and get such pleasure from helping people because I have been there. I've lived a life. I've done brilliant things. I've done amazing things. I've done some really things as well. And I've been in some really, really dark, nasty places. So I know what it's like when somebody tells me that they're in that place, I can not empathize. That's not the right thing to do, but I understand. So when you ask that question, it was a long answer, but yes, I've been there. Yeah, God, definitely. <laughs> Let's talk about um, what you do. And I, I read some interesting things about what you do and some statements that you made, which which made me curious. So one of the things that you said was that you don't need confidence. And that's yes. counterintuitive to me. So I wanted you to, to explain a bit more about that to me. Right. Okay, cool. I'm going to give you three examples that, you and pretty much everybody else has been through and the word confidence didn't appear in your mind in any way shape or form okay have you got kids yes 
I've got one. Small, medium or large? She, she's, uh, she'll be 20 in January. She's 19. Oh, that's, okay. So you've been through the baby process. <laughs> Excuse me, yeah. Cast your mind back, Sarah, to the time when your baby is crawling around. One day she gets up to the sofa and she stretches up and she pulls herself up and she starts doing what I call the sofa crawl or the sofa walk. It's like hand over hand, foot crossing over foot as she walks along the edge of the sofa. And you're going, oh my God, look at this, this is amazing, brilliant stuff. And then maybe the next day she kind of crawls over to your, your, your coffee table and pulls stuff up on a coffee table and crawls around the coffee table and then the chair does that for a while. Yeah. And then comes a momentous occasion where you're sitting there watching telly, minding your own business. This young girl, she's what, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 months, doesn't matter. She's sitting there looking all chuffed with herself. And then suddenly she kind of wriggles and pushes on and she's standing there all wobbly and she takes those first few steps and you're like, oh my God, look, she's, she's walking, she's walking. You're running around, you're screaming, you pick her up, you kiss her, you hug her and you, your partner, your husband does the same thing. You ring everybody, you tell the whole world that your daughter's just taken her first steps. Now to get to those taking those first steps, she fell on her bum seven, eight, 10, 20, 100 times. And she may have cried, she may have hurt herself. And you've gone, oh, there, then you'd be all right. And you put her down. Did she sit there and say to herself, hmm, I'm never going to be able to walk. It's just too hard. I haven't got the confidence. I don't have the ability. I don't have the skill to walk. I'm just going to sit here and, you know, just observe the world from here from now on. I'm not no, of course she didn't. She cried, stops crying, and then does it again and again and again and again until the legs get strong enough, until the balance gets right, that she becomes a pain in the ass now because she's following you everywhere. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. She goes everywhere in the house. So that's the first example. If you've got kids, you've seen this yourself, and we've all been through that stage. Yeah. The next one, you may remember this, it may not, it's when you learn to ride a bike. You learn to ride a bike by maybe having a tricycle first, either one with pedals or one with no pedals, which is like the, the push along with your feet kind of thing. Yeah. And then the next Christmas or two Christmases later, you get a proper bike, but with stabilizers on. Yeah. And this yeah. is, oh my God, I've got a real bike now. And you're out in the street with your mate zooming around and you're, you're wibbling and wobbling on the two stabilizers, having a ball. And then one day, somebody takes one of the wheels away. And so you've got one stable. So you're now cycling like this most of the time, you know, pedaling away because that's the side that's got the stabilizer on it. And you might balance for a few seconds, but oh, no, you're back over on this side. And then comes the momentous day. Somebody's taken the second stabilizer off your bike and you're standing there in the street or in the park or wherever and somebody's got you on the shoulders, holding you really firmly and you start pedaling. And you're wibbling and you're wobbling and you're unsure. Oh, I might fall off and all this kind of thing. And you're wibbling and wobbling. And then magically, the hands let go of the shoulders. And you're still wibbling and wobbling, but you're staying upright. And before you know it, vroom, you're gone. And again, you might have fallen over. You might have scraped your knee. You might have even broken your arm. But did any of that stop you from learning to ride a bike? And did you say to yourself, oh, mum, I haven't got the confidence. I don't feel confident to know to ride a bike. Mum, no, I... I'm never going to ride a bike, but I mean, you might have said I'm never going to ride a bike for a microsecond before getting back up again, but, you know, you, you just do it. Now, the third example, you have done this, you will remember this, learning to drive a car. Now, before I go into this, there's a theme, and I want you to guess what the theme is. So, you want to drive a car. You know you can't drive a car, because you, what do you do? You don't just get in a car and drive off, you've got to have a license. 
And to get a license, you've got to pass a test. And to pass a test, you've got to be trained. So you have lessons. So somebody trains you. You get a driving instructor, you get in the car, and the first day, it's like, oh, my God, how does anybody drive one of these bloody things? And the driving instructor, she goes, well, no, it's okay, chill, and takes you through what a car does, and, you know, about putting petrol in and the tires, all the basics. And then the first, she says, turn the engine on, and you know, you sort of shunt and drive and shunt and drive. And then over time, over the next five or six lessons, you're actually driving the car, and you start to learn the skills, not of driving the car, but working in with other traffic. All the stuff that you need to learn to be a safe driver. Then you pass the test, and away you go. Now, for all three examples that I've just given you, there is one abiding thing across all three of them, and that is you had a burning desire to do something. When you're a baby, it's inbuilt. You want to walk. You can see mum, you can see dad, you see granny, your brothers and sisters walking. I want to walk. Yeah. Riding a bicycle. You want to be a grown-up kid because all your mates are riding bicycles without stabilizers on. You want to be like your mates. You want to be able to go off on adventures. You want to be able to have fun. And to do that, you've got to be able to cycle properly. Driving a car. You want independence. You want freedom. You want to be away from the taxi of mum and dad. You want to be able to go where you want, when you want, whenever you want. It didn't even occur to you to be confident. You knew you knew you couldn't drive a car. It wasn't about, I don't have the confidence to drive a car. I don't have the skills. I don't have the knowledge. I don't know the mechanics of driving a car. So you took lessons. Each of those three things, the word that I would replace confidence with is practice. Yeah. You needed practice and the burning desire to do something. So that's really interesting. So I absolutely agree with you because I think the will, the, the burning desire and the sort of commitment to that can supersede the confidence thing. Or, you, you know, then you're prepared to step out of your comfort zone. If you want it bad enough, you'll do, the, do what it takes to get mm-hmm. to your goal. You'll fail fast as well because that's what kids do, don't you? You keep failing fast and learning and whatever. The interesting thing with the examples that you you shared is that they bring us into society, into you know to be like everyone else in a way that people want to be like everyone else. Yeah. So in speaking, for instance, when you choose to be a speaker, you are stepping, in a sense, out of the group and putting your head above the parapet. That is a slightly different example where you you are doing something which puts you outside of society. Do you think it's exactly the same? I mean, I absolutely agree with you around the desire and the practice. Do you find that's that that's a slightly different scenario when you're putting yourself outside of society? It makes it harder, or I prefer to see it as expanding your comfort zone. Let me give you an example. I had issues with public speaking for a long time. And I'll tell you a story about it in a minute if you've got time. In 2018, I decided to expand my comfort zone by doing something I would never have dreamed of in a million years. And that was a stand-up comedy course. And that included me doing one gig, only five minutes, but five minutes is long enough when you're, first, you're doing your first gig, at the Water Rats in central London. And I did a second gig. Standing up in front of people, trying to make them laugh deliberately is one of the hardest things you can ever do. You're a comedian, so you know this, but for people that aren't, have never done any kind of comedy, 
you'd probably rather stab yourself in the foot than get up on stage and make people laugh. But it was the most amazing experience I've ever had, or one of the most amazing experiences. I was really myself. And there's me walking towards the stage, and he starts clapping, and I'm shivering, and I'm shaking. And then, bizarrely, as soon as my foot hits the stage, all of that just dissipates. And I'm thinking about one thing only, and that's helping the people in the audience to have a good time and hoping that the material that I've put together gets some laughs. And the best thing ever happened to me was I got two hecklers. And most of my period, my material just went out the window because the hecklers were having a go. And instantly, I was able to kind of feed back off of them and have this kind of banter with the hecklers. And the audience loved it. So I got a lot of laughs. And it was, it was such a good thing. And it really made me comfortable with getting up on stage and talking in front of a bunch of people. So from my perspective, that expanded my comfort zone because that's now something that I'm not afraid of doing, which is why I do lots of lives and I love doing podcasts, all this kind of thing. So coming back to your original point about being a speaker and sticking your head above the parapet and all that, I still see it as the society tells you you've got to be confident to do this. And I, I disagree fundamentally. You don't need confidence to get up on stage and talk to people. You need the practice. Can I tell you a story? Yeah, go for it. Right. In 2000 and 2002, I was health and safety deputy manager, something like that, at Eurotunnel. And one day my boss comes along with a stack of stuff, you know, CD-ROMs and books and pamphlets. says, this is the work of Professor Reason, an expert in behavioral safety You've got two weeks to digest this and do a presentation to your peers and your directors. Yes, boss. I'd never done a presentation before, knew nothing about PowerPoint, knew nothing about you know, the behavioral safety, never even heard of the phrase before. So there's Muffin the Mule thinking, what the hell am I going to do? And I make every single wrong mistake you can ever possibly make when putting together a presentation and doing the presentation. So PowerPoint had about a million slides. Each slide had war and peace written on it in tiny little writing. I couldn't get my head around the material. I couldn't understand it, couldn't fathom it. I didn't ask any questions, didn't ask for help. Come the fateful day, the meeting room, which is designed for about 16 people, has got 40 people in there. I get hot very, very quickly when I'm nervous. I'm pouring, literally pouring with sweat. My hair is, it looks like I've been in the shower. I'm shivering, I'm shaking. I've got my back to the audience where I'm kind of reading the, the slides and all of this. And the worst thing about this whole experience was the audience, who my, my friends, my colleagues, directors, senior managers, are looking at me like there's nothing wrong. After about five minutes or so, 10 minutes, I think, my boss comes over and goes, Paul, take a break. I'm not afraid to say this. I literally ran to the gents' bathroom and I cried. I felt hopeless. I felt useless. I felt shame. I felt guilt. I felt really, really awful. I think I nearly threw up. I didn't throw up, but I nearly did. It was just such a bad experience. And from that moment forth, I said, you know, I am never, ever, ever, ever going to do any kind of public speaking ever again. 
And then what happened, which is what I help my clients with, is my subconscious mind went, yeah, that was a saber-toothed tiger event. Because don't forget, our society has evolved way faster than we have evolved as as human beings. We still believe there's saber-toothed tigers behind every bush. So this event where I'm crying, I'm upset, I'm shivering, I'm shaking, my subconscious has taken that to be an event where I've just been attacked by a saber-toothed tiger and survived. So it builds all this baggage, which reminds me, that never to do that again. So it gets stuck in the back of my mind and I forget about it. Fast forward to 20, 2008, we have a major event at work. I'm now the um, emergency response manager and I'm heavily involved in this incident from the start, during the incident, after the incident, and I get to write uh, several of the debrief reports, do presentations in meetings, small meetings with my boss and other people. The current, at the time, chief fire officer invites me to the Kent Resilience Forum. And a resilience forum is an annual meeting where the emergency services, local authorities, and businesses or company organizations have had incidents doing like a, a public debrief and a learning point kind of thing. And he says to me, Paul, you know, you've been really involved in this. I'd like you to represent Eurotunnel and come and talk to us about this event. In a microsecond, I'm going, no, I can't, sorry, no, just, I can't do it. And, and this guy, Steve, is a lovely, lovely guy. He goes, Paul, it's all right. It, you know, it's, we're not going to be trying to pull you down or criticise your organisation. We just want to hear your side of the story, as in my company's side of the story. And I'm thinking, ah, bugger, how can I get out of this? Because up until then, whenever I'd been asked to do a presentation, I'd gone sick, I'd feigned ignorance, not turned up, my car's broken down, every excuse you can make. So... But I can't get out of this. So I'm thinking to myself, right, okay, what do I do? And my mind goes back to this event in 2002, and I get all like, I just can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. There's an internal battle going on. No, you can't, yes, you can, no, you can't, yes, you can. And I'm saying, okay, look, stop it, guys, stop it. We've got to do it, so what do we do? So I then started thinking, how do I do this right? I went onto YouTube, I learned about PowerPoint, I watched presenters Uh, I got some videos of previous people doing the similar kind of things that I was doing. I knew the information intimately because I'd written the reports, I'd been there, seen it, done it, all that. So I put together a presentation. I think it was about 16 slides, mainly photographs, very little text. I knew the information inside out. I went there and I was sitting in the audience while the other speakers during the day were doing their thing. I'm like, oh God, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And my name gets called, you know, Paul goes from you, so I'm talking about blah, blah, blah. So I go up on the stage. And again, this thing I talk about with the stand-up comedy, something clicked in my mind. And as soon as my foot went onto the stage, I thought, you've got this, Paul. These people are here because they want to know not about you, but about the information you want to share. And I went, yeah, that's right, isn't it? They're not here about me. So I got onto the stage and I did my presentation and it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. I got a round of applause, got lots of questions. Off the back of that, I got invited to represent that same thing at two or three other resilience forms around the country. And then I fell in love with presenting. So once I quit the company, well, even before I quit the company, I had a photography group, which went from one to 45,000 members in about a year and a half. And I did lots of live videos in there and lots of, you know, how you do this and how you do that kind of thing. And I love presenting now. I love getting on stage when I have the opportunity. I adore doing uh, podcasts and lives in groups, and this kind of thing. Am I polished? No. Am I perfect? Far from it. Do I make mistakes every single blooming day? Do I want to become a professional speaker and go to 
Toastmasters example. No disrespect again, Toastmasters do a great job, but it's just not for me. I am who I am. And you either love me, you like me, or you loathe me. And that's your choice. And that's why I say that if you want to get into public speaking, you have to have a huge reason why. If you're thinking, well, it will help me a little bit, forget it. If you don't have a message you want to share, if you don't want to help people, if you don't have something that really floats your boat that you need to get out there into the world, forget it. But if you have a message, if you have a story to share, if you have something you really, really want to get out into the world, then you don't need the confidence. All you need is practice. And there are lots of different ways to practice. So that's why I'm adamant that to do public speaking, you don't need confidence. If you look at the definition of confidence, it's belief in oneself and one's abilities. And you can't have an ability if you haven't done it, like going back to the car analogy. You you have zero ability in car driving the first day you step in to have your lesson. So you can't be confident. It's not possible. And you know that because you're going to learn. And it's the same with public speaking. You have to practice and practice and practice so that you have belief in your abilities, that you can share your story, that you can communicate with one pe- with, with people one at a time as well. Yeah. You and I mentioned this at the start of the conversation. You're having a conversation with one person. I'm having a conversation with you, Sarah. Yeah. I know yeah. there's people going to be watching this afterwards, but I'm having a conversation with you. And yeah. that's it. That's all I'm thinking about. I'm not trying to speak to a billion people. No. Just one person. I think it's really interesting. I would, I would say I agree with you, but I think it's... I think it's in a sense it's it's this with the confidence thing. So I talk about having conviction, which is a mixture of confidence and it's a blend of things. So what I often find so I teach comedy course as well. So I, I have comedy students, I have speaking students and and someone may not take action or so they'll say, I'm not ready. And and this is the thing that I say is when you come to me, you are not ready to speak to two hundred and fifty people. So I had a someone similar come to me she she even get anxious uh, in a networking event saying her name she wasn't ready to speak to 250 people she didn't have the confidence to do that but like in the comedy course that you did and, and in the speaking comedy that I teach you know Logan would have built in exercises to to grow your confidence you know you'd have got out of you know he'd have oh, yeah. pushed you out of the edge of your comfort zone to to make yourself feel silly and and by the time you got to that final gig, which is you know is, is what I do as well, you'd have run through your material in front of your peers. You'd have had the chance to practice to to hear it. And so by the time you got to that point, you were ready because mm. he built the steps of your confidence to get you to that point. So I absolutely agree with you. You don't have to be have the confidence to speak to two hundred and fifty people to start the journey to that point. You just have to want it bad enough to commit to taking action to start the journey, and I think I think that's kind of what you're saying as well. I don't think we're disagreeing. I think it's, it's just yeah, a different I, approach. I think yeah, you've got to accept that the first day you go to a comedy course, you have zero ability. And yes, again, using exactly. the car analogy, yeah. first day driving a car, first day on a comedy course, you don't know what you're doing. So no. yes, you're going to be shaky and anxious yes, and all the rest exactly. of it. But that's the problem I get, I get with confidence is society says you've got to have confidence, you've got to have confidence, you've got to have confidence. And that's the wrong thing to say because if people are starting something from scratch, they're never going to have the confidence in it because they've never done it. And yeah, there's no way you can have confidence in something. You yeah. have to practice and learn the skills. So yeah. you then have the belief in your abilities and then the confidence comes because you've practiced and done it. 
that that's the point I'm trying to get across. It's a, yeah. we use this word confidence in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it puts people off unnecessarily. I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Now, the other thing that piqued my curiosity was something that you talk about is the devil's triangle. What's that all about? Okay, imposter syndrome. A lot of people struggle with imposter syndrome. I was trying to think of a way that would bring it home to people. So if you imagine a triangle and it's all on fire and you've got the devil's face in the background, real scary. Down one side, you've got procrastination. Down the other side, you've got perfectionism. And across the bottom, you've got overwhelm or petrification, you know, like you're, you're stood still, you're frozen. The three Ps, paralysis, yeah? Mm-hmm. Those are symptoms. They're not a root cause. You're not a procrastinist as, as, a, as in like an illness or a thing. Yeah. It, it's been caused by something. And like I mentioned earlier, being the explorer, going back along the stream to find the source of the, the problem we can often dig back and find that problem. Let me give you an example. Um, I had a client who was struggling with paralysis. She just, there's too much to do, Paul. I've got this and there's this and this. I want to start this business, but I've got emails to write. I've got content to write. I need to go live. And I need to get the website built. And I, need to, and I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. And we, we did the work and we found out that there was some money issues in there tied in there as well, that she couldn't be richer than her parents and that she felt she didn't deserve to be successful. So that was one aspect of it. But we dug deeper and we found out that when she was a kid, she got a bicycle for Christmas, a pink bicycle for Christmas, all the tassels and stuff on it. She loved it. But within about three months of her getting that bicycle, the parents' business went bust and the bailiffs were called in. And this was during a time when the bailiffs would come into your house and literally take everything. Yeah, And that's what happened. And so, of course, it was a very... Uh, what's the word? I'm like a very dark time. Parents were arguing, parents were upset. And of course, when the parents are arguing upset, that feeds off to the kids. And my client got really upset and she thought it was her fault. She'd asked for a bicycle and she'd equated asking for a bicycle to the business going bankrupt, to the bailiffs coming in. And it was her fault. And what she was thinking, what her subconscious was saying was, okay, look, we, we caused this way back then. So we, we, we can't possibly start a business because it will fail, because we'll buy something, the wrong thing. And if we make too much money, we'll be undeserved because that means that poor mum and dad never earned any money like that. So we just can't do it. Yeah. And there's all this stuff that was wrapped up in what she thought was overwhelm. And it had nothing to do with it. It was like having a cold. The runny nose is a symptom. It's not the cold itself. And so the overwhelm or the procrastination or perfectionism, they are symptoms of something else, which is usually feeling like a fake, feeling like you don't deserve it, that you don't deserve to be successful, you don't deserve to earn more than your parents did, this, that, and the other. Mm. And so using something like a metaphor like the devil's triangle, because there are things like the devil's punch bowl and the devil's hill that are sort of geographical things that exist. So it's easy to equate, oh, a devil's triangle, I get that, bad thing, so procrastinating, yeah. So it's just a metaphor, essentially. Yeah. Rather than saying, yeah. people struggle with this, that, and the other, it's a bit boring. And so yeah. a devil's triangle is a bit, ooh, gets people thinking, gets people, yeah, yeah I've struggled with perfectionism. Yeah, yeah, procrastination. When I talk about procrastination, I'm not talking about the procrastination where you're sitting there, you've just had your dinner and go, 
can't bother to do the dishes now, the dishes in the morning. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the procrastination where you know you've got to make 20 sales calls or you know you've got to write that piece of content or you know you've got to pay your taxes and you don't do it for whatever reason. That is, and that's the kind of procrastination I'm talking about. Cool. And so it was perfectionism, procrastination. What was the other one? Um, paralysis or overwhelm. It's three Ps because it, it rhymes kind of, but yeah, you can yeah. say overwhelm because pop yeah. isn't scary, is it? You know? Yeah. Cool. That's brilliant. Well, thank you for that. It's been brilliant talking to you. And um, I'm going to come back to where people can find out more about you, about working with you, um, getting on your list and all sorts of things in a second. But there's a few standard questions that I wanted to ask you, if that's okay. Go for it. I'm ready. The first one is, what has speaking done for you? What's the best thing it's done for you? That's a really good question. Speaking for me has helped me get out of myself in the sense of the incident in 2002 where I was never, ever going to speak again. And this guy, Steve, gently encouraging me to speak on a platform in front of about 500 people got me to see that I could do it and that I did have a message. I do have a message and there are things that I want to share with people. And I get a buzz and I enjoy it and it gives me a thrill and it's exciting. And speaking has led to me meeting some incredible people and it's probably clients. Clients will contact me and say, Paul, you know, uh, can we work together? And I ask, how do you find me? And they go, oh, it's one of your lives on Facebook. I can't remember which one, but I've been following you for a year and I watch all your lives and I just got to like you and I knew you were the guy that could help me and now I need help. Perfect. So, it's, it, yeah, all sorts of ways. And yeah. I think one of, my next question was what's what's been your worst gig? But I think we probably covered it off. With that. I think you covered that one, <laughs> yeah. In, in graphic detail, my worst gig. I'm not going to go there again, thank you. because it's. <laughs> no. What's the book? that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh, that is such a difficult question because I love reading and I have read so many books and to pick one is is kind of impossible. Um, What's the one that springs to mind today? We will we'll take away the... There are, like, there are two. Can I get away okay. with two? Okay, the first yes. one is a kind of non-fiction parable and that's The Alchemist by Paolo oh, Coelho yes. with Santiago, the young shepherd who goes on adventures. Mm, and this, it's brilliant. I love that story. People slate it left, right and centre, but I love it. It's such a simple, beautiful story about perseverance and having a dream, having a desire and overcoming challenges and obstacles, which he goes through a hell of a lot of them to get to where he wants to be in the end. It's a fabulous little story. The second one is a new book by... Um, James Nestor, I apologise, James. I never get your surname right. James Nestor, and it's spelt uh, breathe, B-R-E-A-T-H. And it's about, in a nutshell, how most of us are breathing wrongly. And I'm not talking about chest or stomach breathing, but we, a lot of people are, are mouth breathers. And this causes so many problems. And I've had asthma all my life. And I used to snore horrendously as well. And this book has really, really helped me get a grip on what I'm doing wrong and how to improve it, how to improve things. And I've actually shared this book with clients now because clients say they're having problems sleeping and they're having problems breathing. And this book, I would strongly recommend this book to anybody who is having problems at night sleeping, who's got sleep apnea or snoring, asthma, that kind of thing. It's a really, really... And even if you haven't got any of those things, it's a really good book if you're working with clients to actually read because a lot of the clients have symptoms that are aligned with not sleeping well. 
and this yeah. gives a, a lot of information and it's, it's science backed as well it's not just a journalist writing about a subject he spent 10 years researching this book and there's loads of references and all that kind of stuff so it's it's science backed writing which is is the best kind so that's they're, they're the wow. two i've read i read loads and loads and loads of books those are the two standout ones for me at the moment fantastic well i'll put a link to those in the show notes um and so the best bit of business advice you've ever had and why i don't think i don't think anybody's ever given me any kind of business advice directly one-to-one because i've only been in business for myself for a couple of years now but the one thing that i would say that i've learned and this is a quote from winston churchill who i mentioned earlier on is don't give in don't give up if you've got a goal, a dream, a desire. Okay, if you're 60, you want to be an astronaut, you haven't got any kind of science degree, then that's unrealistic. But if you want to open an art school, if you want to get on the stage in front of a thousand people, those things are achievable. And if that's your dream, then go for it, but be prepared to do the work. Yeah, be prepared to get your hands dirty and dig in and practice, practice, practice. Absolutely, cool. Okay, last question then. If you could have any mentor, and they can be live or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, my goodness. Again, there are so many people that would fit. Joe Rogan, he's got probably the most... He's been an actor. He's been a TV show host. He is a commentator for MMA, mixed martial arts fighting, and he's got probably the biggest, most popular podcast on the planet. He's an amazing guy. Marcus Aurelius, who wrote Meditations. Him or Socrates or Plato, one of those three guys, would be brilliant. There, in the book Breathe, James talks about this lady uh, in kind of Victorian times who leaves, she's a French opera singer, and she leaves all that behind and spends 20 years wandering around India and Northeast Asia on her own, looking for the mysteries of life. And I think that's absolutely fabulous story. And I would just love to be able to sit with her and learn what piques her curiosity and what gave her the courage. Because they're still talking Victorian times, we're talking about, you know, all the, the dangers and there were still wild animals around the place and women travelling singly was probably far more dangerous then than it is now. Just an amazing person. Wow. Yeah, and she's in that book. Oh, okay. And so Tapping into your just, nomadic thing that you wanted to do that got interrupted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, but it's, it's the why yeah. Did it. And, and because she became an expert at yoga and breath work and all kinds of mystical kind of things. Uh, the last one, a bit of a weird one, is um, Alistair Crowley, who right. was, for those that don't know, he was a bit of a nut job, this guy. He was big into black magic and was on the edges of the extremes of all kinds of things. But he had such a fascinating life. I was into all kinds of bizarre things that I'd love to kind of sit and have a conversation with him. Not about business, but about what drove him to do all these interesting and diverse things when he was going against everything. We're talking real counterculture here because we're talking about the time when a British man was supposed to be a gentleman and honourable and this and that, um, upright and stiff. And he he threw all that out the window and just went off and did his own thing. And, you know is still remembered, what, 100 years or so after his death. Well, blimey. Those people, it sounds like a fascinating dinner party if you got them all oh, it'd be a brilliant dinner party. It'd be amazing. <laughs> Whether they would talk to each other or not, I'm not really sure, but it would be a fascinating dinner party. 
Brilliant. Paul, thank you so much for sharing all of your tips and uh, and being so vulnerable. Uh, I think a lot of people will get a lot from your own journeys and stories uh, as much as, you know, from, from what you teach. So, but if they want to find out more about you, um, either to work with you or to get you on a show or to speak, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, the best place is Facebook and LinkedIn. And the links are pretty much identical. Facebook is facebook.com Paul Wilson Mindset Coach. And guess oh. what? LinkedIn is linkedin.com Paul Wilson Mindset Coach. Cool. And we'll put a link to that. And have you got a website people can go to and find out more about you? Yeah, I love this website. Um, it's www.ahappyhead.co.uk. And if you just go forward slash testimonials, you can see videos and written testimonials that people have written about me. Yeah, I did check those out. They're very good. So um, thank you. cool. Well, listen, thank you again so, so much. Um, it's been great to talk to you. And, um, and, and I'm sure, as I said, people will get a lot of value from what you've shared today. So I hope really so. appreciate it, Paul. You take care. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed meeting Paul and got a lot out of this episode to help you overcome any of the mindset challenges that might be stopping you or slowing you down. So head over to ahappyhead.co.uk to find out more about Paul's work or connect with him on social media. And these links are also in the show notes. Now, one thing that Paul and I did agree on was that taking action and getting practice was the way to build your confidence, especially in public speaking and storytelling. And that's exactly why I offer my free Snackable Story Challenge, because it helps you do exactly that. You get training and coaching and practice. And on a longer term basis, the Speaking Club Live membership gives you a safe space to test your messaging, test your content, practice your speaking and storytelling skills, test your humor and do that in front of an audience and in front of me to get coaching and feedback every week. So if you want to find out more about the membership, Speaking Club Live membership, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club. And if you want to find out about the challenge, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. Both safe spaces for you to grow and move forward on your speaking journey. So as ever, if you enjoyed the show, then do leave a rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. That's ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. I can't tell you how important these are to me personally. I put a lot of effort into the show. I love hearing that it's made an impact or helped you or even tickled your fancy, as we say. And uh, it's good. It's just good to get the reviews and ratings and it helps other people find the show too. Uh, yeah. And also, if you haven't subscribed, make sure you do that. We've got some brilliant shows coming up. Really looking forward to sharing those with you. And I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to check out that Snackable Story Challenge. I promise you you'll have a blast and we'll uh, get a chance to work together on your stories, which is fabulous. And also, don't forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. 
The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free snackable story challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.